there was a man uh, in this town who took a stand uh, that, that few were willing to take. And, and in fact, a lot of people are still talking about it today. They're still talking about taking that stand, uh, but he did it. He took a stand, and that's, that's the reason that this church is here. Uh, and the reason that uh, Riverstone exists. And he's here today. Charles, stand up. I know you hate this, but do it anyway. I love love Charles Sinus. He's one of my... Uh, spiritual fathers. Uh, he's also hired me twice. <laughs> so, you know, I don't hold that against him. I, I don't know if that says anything about his judgment, but it, it certainly speaks to uh, how he has loved me and led me through the years. So thank you, Charles, and thank you for being here. Um, so we're, we're heading towards Easter. Easter, of course, next Sunday, and we've been talking a lot about uh, inviting people, and we've talked about the fact that uh, statistics show that e- even though we live in somewhat, uh, people like to call it a, a post-Christian world, and and we have a an incredible number of people in our county right here in the Bible Belt who are unchurched. Uh, some people say the number is between 60 and 70 percent of people who live in Cobb County don't go to church. But in spite of all those negative statistics, we have talked about the fact that Statistics show that if you invite an unchurched person uh, to church, about close to 50%, 47, 48% will strongly consider coming. And then, of course, we've also noted that 100% of those that you bring come. And uh, so we've talked about that, and someone put it to the test We also noted that a lot of unchurched people would rather come to something other than Sunday morning to get started. And so we've encouraged people, invite them to our Wednesday dinner. And so last week, I don't know if she's here or not. I won't embarrass her by making her stand up or anything. But one of our ladies in the church invited nine people to our Wednesday night dinner. And eight of them came. Yeah. So I'm just saying, you know, be, continue to pray, and then next Sunday, 9 and 11, uh, bring bring your people. So we're going to continue our walk through um, Mark as we lead up to uh, the the events of Easter. And I, I know this is Palm Sunday, and we, we didn't wave branches or anything. And uh, I hope that doesn't just throw you into a tailspin. Uh, I know the Sozo teams are available if, if you have a hard time with that. But I promise you that some, maybe some Sunday in the future uh, we'll just randomly wave palm branches and, and we'll point back and say, remember? So there you go. So today, though, we want to continue. We've been talking about the events leading up to the cross. And, and last week we, we looked at uh, Jesus uh, taking his disciples uh, into the garden to pray uh, and we talked about what happens when trouble comes and where do you go when trouble comes. So today we're going to continue uh, in Mark 14, beginning at verse 53. And I'm going to read a pretty good chunk. And I just encourage you, uh, 
to read with me and, and to pay attention. This, this is important. I mean, honestly, uh, you could, uh, we could read this and go home. Because what's written in the book is, is more important than anything I might say. Okay? So just know that. So pay attention to this. Mark 14, beginning at 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Lord, I pray that that you would speak to us this morning uh, from your story from your life, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Jesus, uh, as we discussed last week, they, they have this supper, and, and it's, it's intense, and Jesus is saying things like, you're all going to leave me, one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to deny me. And it's not you know, this serene, peaceful dinner. It's, it's a little bit... Somebody had described it as a family, a dysfunctional family dinner. And so I don't know, maybe you've been a part of those. 
And uh, maybe you, you can understand this experience. But it, it was a little tense. And then they leave from there and they go to the garden to pray. And as we looked at last week, three times Jesus comes and finds the disciples sleeping uh, when he had asked them to pray. And, and then towards the end of that time in the garden, he, he says, okay, you, you can get up now. It's, it's time. Uh, my betrayer is coming. And so the soldiers come and they arrest Jesus. And Scripture says an interesting thing. It says that they arrest Jesus, they begin to take him away, uh, and Peter follows at a distance. Peter follows at a distance. And just just remember that. We'll come back to that a little bit later. So they take him to the high priest, and and they take him right away, and and they're going to have this trial at night, which is highly unusual. At this point in time, it's still legal, but it's just very uncommon, very unusual to have trials at night. They're usually held during the day. Later on in history, they actually make uh, nighttime trials illegal. They're forbidden. You can't do it. And, but at this point, they can. And there are a couple of reasons why they have this trial at night. One is they're in a hurry. They're in a hurry. They, they want to get this done. They, they want to push this thing through and get Jesus killed. That's, that's their whole objective. And they don't want to take any time or any pause. They don't want to give people a, you know, a chance to think this through and, and maybe render a different decision. So they're pushing it through. They're in a hurry. But then a, a, another reason that they do it at night is because you can get away with stuff in the dark. You can get away with stuff in the dark. And we know that. Jesus even said it in, in John's Gospel. I think it's chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus said, you love the darkness because your deeds are evil. You love the darkness because your deeds are evil. So the chief priest and the Sanhedrin, they're looking for evidence uh, to convict Jesus. They want him dead. They can't find any evidence. Uh, They bring in witnesses. Their witnesses can't agree. Everything's not going the way they want it to go. The high priest asks Jesus... And he doesn't answer, and then he asks him again. And this, this is really significant. I want you to pay attention to this. He asks him a second time, and the question that he asks is, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Now, understand that in the Gospels, up until now, this phrase, Son of God, has never been uttered from a human lip about Jesus. No human has said, you're the Son of God. Guess who has said it? Demons and God himself. You know why? Because they know stuff. They know stuff. And so up until this point, only demons have said, Son of God, called Jesus Son of God, and his Father has called him Son of God. And so... uh, uh, the, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus' answer is actually the evidence that they've been looking for. It's the evidence that they've been looking for. This is what he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Understand, Jesus' answer doesn't just say, I am sent by God. The answer that Jesus says, the answer that Jesus gives, says, I am God. 
That's his answer. His answer is not, yes, I'm sent by God. His answer is, I am God. And you're going to know that I'm God because you're going to see me at the right hand. Do you know what the right hand represents? Authority and power and judgment. I mean, if you want to talk about a statement that should put the fear of God in someone, that would be it. And so he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, at this point, the high priest has two options, and only two options. He can can say that Jesus is a blasphemer, or he can say that he is a blasphemer. And guess which one he picks? He picks that Jesus is, and he tears his clothes, and he says... The trial is over. We don't need any more evidence. We don't need any more testimonies. We have all the evidence that we need. You heard what he said. He's a blasphemer, and he needs to die. And at this point, it gets kind of ugly, right? They they spit on him. They start yelling things at him. They're mocking him. They hit him with their fists. They beat him with clubs. And while all this is going on, Peter's in the courtyard. Peter's in the courtyard, and, and he's accused three times of being a friend of Jesus And he denies it. Now, in chapter 15, we didn't read into chapter 15, but in chapter 15, they take Jesus. Now, they they have basically convicted him in this Jewish religious law trial. The problem is they don't have the authority to kill him. They need Rome's help. And so they take him now to the governor. They take him to Pontius Pilate, and they say, this guy's guilty. We want him dead. Now, it's obvious that they change the charge. What what have they found him guilty of? Supposedly, they have found him guilty of blasphemy. Well, Rome doesn't care about that. Rome could care less about Jewish laws, Jewish religious laws. And so they change, obviously, they change the charge because the question that Pilate asks is, are you the king of the Jews? Because if Jesus is claiming to be a king, then he's broken a Roman law. And so they obviously, they find him guilty of blasphemy. They take him to Pilate and they say, oh, by the way, he's claiming to be a king. And so that's what Pilate asks him. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, here here are the things that we need to understand about this situation. Jesus is innocent. I mean, that's, that's the way it has to be. This is God's plan, yes. Jesus is going to the cross, yes. Jesus is going to die for our sins, yes. And only the blood of a perfect sacrifice will render the result that God is after. And so Jesus, the sinless, perfect sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, Jesus was innocent. So we that's established. We recognize that. We believe that. The question becomes, who is guilty? Who is guilty? Because... Christians blame the Jews, right? 
Jews blame the Romans? Some people just say, you know, it was just God's plan. It's just God's plan. Nobody, nobody's really guilty. But the truth is, the Jewish leaders were guilty. They pushed this thing. They, they were guilty. You, you can't say that they were innocent. They had an agenda. They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted him out of the way because he wasn't serving their agenda, and their agenda was to be in control and to have power. So the Jewish leaders were guilty. Guess what? Pontius Pilate was guilty. You know what? He didn't want Jesus to be guilty, but he also wasn't willing to stand up and take, take a stand for his innocence. What Pilate, what Pilate really wanted was to be neutral. And I just want to say to you that neutral is guilty. Neutral is guilty. Well, guess who else was guilty? Peter. Yeah, I mean, we say Judas. So obviously Judas is guilty, right? What about Peter? Peter was guilty as well. Peter was guilty. Judas was guilty. He, betray, he, didn't, he betrayed Jesus. Peter is guilty. He denied Jesus. So let's just boil it all down. Here are the people who are guilty. Every person who has ever taken a breath. Every person who has ever taken a breath is guilty. Everybody in the story, every character in the story other than Jesus needs redemption. Those who are against Jesus, those who want to remain neutral, and those who want to be for Jesus but fail. We all need redemption. Peter... I think we like to identify with Peter because he, he really represents a lot of who we are. Peter represents that person you know who wants to do right but doesn't quite do right. And, and we fall in that category so much. Peter is the person who said, I'll never deny you, but then he denies you, denies him. Uh, Peter's the one who says, I will die for you, and then actually runs to hide. Uh, Peter's the one who promised that he would be there and then he wasn't there. Awesome. So, Paul says in Romans 7, uh, and, and this, is a, this is a great verse that we identify as well. Uh, Paul says, the good things that I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things that I don't want to do, I wind up doing. Uh, how, many, how many could just identify with that verse maybe once or twice in your life? Yeah. Yeah. So what is the difference then between the Peter of Mark's gospel and the Peter that we find in the book of Acts, who is an absolute fearless warrior for the kingdom? What is the difference? The old Peter was the guy who slept when he should have prayed, who followed Jesus from a distance, and who denied Jesus when things got difficult. That's the old Peter. You could say he slept when he should have prayed, he followed at a distance, and he warmed his hands at the enemy's fire. Jesus, I mean, Peter is actually warming himself in front of a fire that has been 
made by the soldiers and those that arrested and those that accused. And Jesus is right there with the accusers warming his hands. And I would say this. We talked about last week, what do you do when trouble comes? And I will say this. If you depend on the world for comfort, you will have a hard time staying true to God when trouble comes. If you depend on the world for comfort, that's what Peter is doing. He's depending on comfort provided by the enemies of Jesus as he stands in front of the fire and warms his hands. If you depend on the world for comfort, you will have a hard time staying true to Jesus when trouble comes. So what about the new Peter? Who is this guy? So if the old Peter was a guy who slept when he should have prayed, who followed from a distance and denied Jesus when things got difficult, who's the new Peter? The new Peter was a man of prayer. We find him, as you read through the book of Acts, He now he's the guy. You know, Jesus was the guy who was going off and praying, and the disciples were watching and wondering and thinking, well, God, could you teach us? Jesus, could you teach us how to pray? And now it's Peter. Peter is the guy who's going apart to pray. Peter is the guy who's up on the roof praying, and God's speaking to him in vision. So Peter has become a man of prayer. Peter was restored. The new Peter is restored to a place of intimacy with Jesus. It's a wonderful, beautiful story. Jesus, after the resurrection, he comes and he finds Peter, who's denied him three times, and he says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. He, he knows that's the right answer, right? And Jesus asks him a second time, do you love me? And Peter, again, he knows it's the right answer, but he also knows that his actions haven't borne it out. And so it, he's hesitant. But he says, yes, I I love you. Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Third time, Peter's like, okay, I don't know. You, You know. You know everything. Jesus, why are you even asking me the question? You know everything. It was incredible. Reconciliation. Jesus is so intentional in this reconciliation of relationship. He, Jesus, Peter denied him three times. Jesus gives him three opportunities to profess his love because Jesus cares about the intimate details of our relationship and our life with him. And so Peter is restored to a place of intimacy with Jesus and he becomes a fearless Follower who actually stands up and preaches publicly, knowing that he will be arrested, preaches in front of the very people that before Pentecost he was afraid of. The people that he ran from, the people that he hid from, the people that he cursed himself in front of and said, I don't know this man. Those same people, he stands up before them and says, I don't care what you do to me. Should I obey you or should I obey God? I will obey God. And so this Peter is obviously different, right? So what changed? What changed? The cross reveals the guilt of the world. 
But the cross is not about guilt. The cross does reveal the guilt of the world, but the cross is not about guilt. The cross is about redemption. The cross is about redemption. Now, we, we, we tend to think, when we think about the cross, we tend to think about forgiveness because we know that we all need forgiveness, and the cross is about forgiveness, but it's not just about forgiveness. Redemption is more than forgiveness. To redeem means one definition is to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of something. And so that's kind of what we think of when we think of forgiveness, right? Redemption is compensating for the faults or the bad aspects of something. But uh, another definition which is closer to the definition of Scripture is to gain or to regain possession of something for payment. So when we talk about redemption, what we're saying is that Jesus paid on the cross to purchase us back. The cross is not just about forgiveness. The cross is about ownership. We were created by God for God. We were created to be in relationship with God. And sin messed it up. Sin broke the relationship, destroyed the relationship. Ephesians says we were dead in our sins. Redemption is the purchasing back, the bringing back into possession. We belong to God because of the cross. Peter's tears do not redeem him. Bible says when it hits Peter, when he hears the rooster crow the second time and he knows he's denied Jesus three times, he goes out and he weeps. It says he goes out and weeps bitterly. But Peter's tears do not redeem him because redemption is greater than sorrow. Feeling guilty does not redeem us. It just doesn't. Walking in shame only increases our need for redemption. In fact, if we believe, if if we say we believe in the power of the cross and yet we walk in shame, we're counter, we're contradicting ourselves because the power of the cross is to break the shame the shame and the guilt of sin that separates us from the Father is removed at the cross. Understand this. The cross does not call us to account. It settles our account. The cross does not call us to feel guilty and to be ashamed and to think, oh my gosh, I can't believe God died for me. I need to do something about that. I I need to take care of that. I need to fix that. I need to be better. I need to live different. He died for me. He died because of my sin. He died. And so from now on, I need to be perfect. I need to live a life that's worthy of that. And so I'm going to do this. The 
cross does not call us to account. The cross settles our account. But redemption is not just about your account being settled. Redemption is about relationship. Redemption is about relationship. Paul says that the key to relationship is Christ in you. That's the difference. If you want to know the difference between the Peter of Mark's gospel and the Peter in the book of Acts, the difference is the spirit of Christ in him. That is the difference. That is the only difference. It's the only difference. It's the Spirit of God in him. That is what changed him. That is what transformed his life. Jesus told his disciples that when he was gone, when he went back to be with the Father, that he would send them a helper. And oh, what a helper he sent. The Holy Spirit came to live in them, and the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. God created us for relationship with himself. Sin ruined us and became a barrier that made that relationship impossible. The cross, the death of the only innocent one, removes the barrier and creates again the possibility of relationship and surrender makes that relationship reality nothing else we enter back into relationship with the father through the son by the holy spirit through surrender not through cooperation Not through compromise, here God, let's negotiate. I'll do this if you'll do that. It is an all-out surrender. I give you my life. I'm not asking you, Jesus, to come in and be part of my life. I am surrendering. I am giving up. I am not in charge anymore. I don't want to be in charge ever again. My life is yours. Do with it as you wish. Not just trying to live for him, but surrendering to him and asking him to live his life in and through you. That is redemption. Nothing else. Now let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross because it is your death on the cross that removed the barrier that kept us from you. We also thank you for the empty tomb because it is your resurrection that pronounces the defeat of death and the defeat of sin forever. And Lord, we say yes to your invitation 
for unconditional surrender. We say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask our uh, servers to come and get ready. Uh, We'll be continuing our service through uh, participating in the Lord's Supper. And uh, the good news is, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the awkward, tense nature of... (laughs) of a supper, the disciples and Jesus, where he's saying to them things like, you're going to deny me, you're going to betray me, you're all going to leave me. And none of that, none of that is being said at this table. What is being said at this table is, "I, I have died for you. I have been raised on the third day. It is finished. You can trust me. I've done everything that needs to be done for us to be friends. Come to my table and receive from me. That's the invitation for you today. If you know Jesus, if you're in relationship with Jesus, or if you want to be in relationship with Jesus, I encourage you to come to his table today and come expecting to meet him here. His grace is available at his table. Jesus is actually in this room. Through the presence of his spirit, he wants to engage you in a real way. So I encourage you to come expecting to meet him. You'll receive a broken piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and then take it in that manner. And uh, I think there'll be people to direct you on how to come and when to come. Okay? Won't you stand? Jesus, you said, do this in remembrance of me. And so today, we remember you. you've done. We remember who you are. We remember the promises you've made. And we trust you. In Jesus' name. Before we begin coming, I want us to uh, declare together the Apostles' Creed. If you guys could throw that on the screen. That would be amazing. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.
Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in this place as we come to your table, Lord. Meet us here in Jesus' name. Amen.